And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Sarah Janes, lucid dreamer, writer, researcher, public speaker, and sleep hypnosis facilitator. Today we will talk about her book, Initiation into the Dream Mysteries, and more. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. So how did you become interested in dreaming in the first place? Um, I've always been into dreaming. I can't remember a time when I wasn't into dreaming. I've had really vivid and lucid dreams since I was a kid. Um, it's one of the things that I've compared notes with people a lot when I meet other people that are really into lucid dreaming. Um, and one of my favorite people that I've met in the course of my sort of research and work in the arena of dreams is uh, a woman called Rebecca Sharrock, who has a condition. I don't know whether you call it a condition. It's a it's a kind of um, assessment called highly superior autobiographical memory. And there are only about 90 people in the world who have been assessed, like fully assessed, and Rebecca's one of them. And this basically means that Rebecca can remember everything that's ever happened to her in her life, essentially. She thinks she can remember being in the womb. She has memories of being in the womb. Um, and when I was interviewing her with my friend Anthony Peake, who I do a podcast with called Consciousness Hour, I was so excited when he told me that we were going to interview her. I said to him, oh, this will be great, because if she remembers everything, it means that she'll be lucid in all of her dreams, because, you know, being lucid is remembering that you're dreaming. And so I was so excited to ask her that question. And she was really excited to answer it as well, because she said, like, no one else has thought to ask me about that sort of stuff. But um we were comparing notes because I can remember dreams of when I was really, really small as well. And I said to her, I remember dreams where everything was just white. And as I got older, the white space got filled in with things. And she said that she had the same experience as well. So that was that was quite an amazing um, interaction for me to talk to someone else about that kind of thing. But yeah, I've just always been into lucid dreaming. Um, and as I was saying to you before, I've done lots of other careers. I was a, a gig promoter, music promoter, went on tour with bands. Um, I worked in TV and film. Um, I've done literally a bit of everything. Um, but I never, I've always been into dreams. I never realized though that you could pursue dreams as some sort of career. So I've been hosting a, a lecture club in my hometown. I live on the South Coast of England and I live in a really small town and there wasn't much going on. So I started up my own lecture series and I started it because I thought I might like to go to university to study anthropology. So I started to sneak in to the University of Sussex and sort of pretend to be a student and attend lectures. And I had the idea to ask some of the lecturers that I enjoyed their presentations most if they would come and do like a presentation as, as an event in my hometown. So I gave them £100 and I invited all of my friends and charged them like a fiver for a ticket. And then I had just some amazing speakers. I had like neuroscientists, AI experts, like ethicists, um, psychologists, ancient cultural historians, like all sorts of stuff. So we were doing that for years. I've been doing that since about 2012. Um, and then I once met this, um, one of the present presenters was called Dr. David Luke, and he is a lecturer, senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Greenwich. 
and he specializes in anomalous phenomena um, in human consciousness, in exceptional human experiences. And we got onto the subject of lucid dreaming. And he mentioned that he'd just been to visit a sleep temple that was dedicated to the Celtic god Nodens in Gloucestershire in England. And it was like a penny dropping moment because I realized that actually you could really study this. And I said to him, like, if I'd known you could study dreams at university, I would have been like super into pursuing that. Um, and so then it's just really, it was really, cause I've always loved ancient culture. I run an Egyptology lecture series on YouTube. So I interview lots of Egyptologists about their work and quite often I'm quite geeky about it. So I like focusing in on super niche subjects like, uh, ancient Egyptian magic and medicine, like women's healthcare, like really the kinds of stuff that you don't often see on, um, Egyptian documentaries and things like this. And, uh, I've just, I love doing it. Um, so learning that there were such things as sleep temples in ancient times just was this obvious um realization that i could combine all my favorite things and uh work towards researching sleep temples and and i guess i feel like it's really helped me to contextualize dreaming as well like my research into the ancient history of dreaming and sleep temples has helped me to make sense of dreaming as a whole in a way in some in some way I don't think you know dreaming is always going to be a bit of a mystery but it's helped me to understand why I enjoy it so much and why I think it's so important well it sounds like you put your gig promoting to good use into consciousness promoting now yeah exactly <laughs> well it's a lot easier actually gig promoting is very stressful when you got to think about backline and all that kind of business when you're um putting speakers on or you're doing podcasts there's like hardly any logistics that need to be sorted out so that was because i always used to find gig promoting quite stressful as well you've got to sell loads of tickets <laughs> you've got to uh organize everyone organize transport and accommodation so yeah this is like piece of cake when I started to do um, lectures and then even more of a piece of cake when you do online lectures. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you had a dream that was all white or something. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So these are memories that I have of like really early dreams, which I think I must've been like a baby or an early toddler type dream. And um, I remember distinctly this all white space. And uh, the first things I remember seeing in dreams were toys and in particular, I have this very vivid memory of this one particular toy that I had was a Fisher-Price chat-along phone. It was like a, a kind of anthropomorphic phone with eyes and a mouth and um, really colourful. And you pulled it along with a little cord. And it was my favourite toy. And I guess I must have been about three. And I remember this phone ringing and answering it. And it was Wurzel Gummidge, who was a terrifying scarecrow character in a tv children's tv show when i was little and he was telling me that he had um just killed my nan and that was the first like distinct dream that i can remember and then i remember um various other toys and then i remember furniture and then i remember characters and animals started to come into the dream and then uh one of the processes one of the things that i just did naturally is i used to draw my dreams and map them out and i think that really helped me to create this kind of cohesive dream world. So I really always enjoyed mapping out the landscape and the architecture of the places that I was seeing in my dreams. So every night I'd kind of return back to that world and it helped me. I mean, it really kind of coalesced into a um, sort of cohesive other world that I would explore when I would dream at night. And I remember, I think I said to my dad once, um, 
I would rather live in the dream world than this world because my dream world was like really exciting and um, like exotic and beautiful. And I lived in uh, South London when I was a kid and it was a bit grim and I lived next to a sewage farm and a main road and a landfill and an industrial estate. So I think there was an element of escapism in that as well. Well, when you mentioned the realm or a space being all white, I was hoping that you were going to talk about something possibly being pre-birth because I speak with so many near-death experiencers and them being in a realm of completely white or white light. Yeah, I wonder if that was a process of remembering something pre-birth because when Rebecca was discussing this as well and she was saying that she, Rebecca is the woman who's got highly superior autobiographical memory and she was saying that she remembers being in this all-white space and she can remember being you know those memories she thinks she was in the womb so the white could be a remembering of being in this pure pre-birth um space definitely so you write about dream temples where are they predominantly located and what were they doing in those temples in ancient times well there seems to have been this tradition of uh temple sleep since the very earliest times of human culture it's impossible to date it but it's probably uh even in the it's probably in the stone age you know this idea of um sleeping in particular places to get a desired dream and it probably began with uh necromancy and cults of worshiping the ancestors and sleeping in tombs graves or places where bodies were interred and then developed into once people started to build temples, this idea that a temple became a sacred precinct and therefore to sleep in that sacred space, um, you were entering into a divine realm or you were having special contact with the deceased that might be buried underneath this temple. So first of all, you have temple sleep, which are these really, really early ideas of sacred space influencing dream content essentially and then uh in the egyptian time and in the ancient near east you have more of a kind of development and then you end up in in ancient greece in the hellenic period having these incredibly complex sanctuaries all dedicated to the dream healer god asclepius and these were essentially kind of like spas and cultural centers where you would go to receive a visitation from the god for a spontaneous healing in the dream. And there are other dream temples more associated with um, receiving an oracle or a permanent, you know, a future vision in the dream as well. Do you think that they were consuming psychedelics at the time? When they were, you know, in these dream temples? I mean, I'm, there seems to be psychoactive use throughout ancient human history. So quite likely there were a variety of different substances used because they had an expansive pharmacomia, pharmacopoeia in the ancient Near East, in Egypt and Greece. They were using things like henbane, um, uh uh, opium was probably like the predominant substance, I would say, using the Asclepia and not necessarily um, in large doses, I think quite likely in fumigation or poppy tea and things like that. So it may have had quite subtle effect on patients and it may have been something that kind of blurred the lines between waking and dreaming so that 
when people were going for that divine dream and they were lying in these kind of dormitories for that divine dream, that the temple attendants may have been acting out some sort of psychodrama that in that opium opium induced state they might have felt was really happening to them so there are lots of accounts of successful treatments occurring in these dream temples and it suggests to me that there was definitely um they had some efficacy you know that they these procedures were working for a lot of people we know the placebo effect works faith healing responses have been well evidenced as well and in this kind of scenario where you're you're basically being programmed to um, to believe that Asclepius can heal you, if you have a dream in which he does perform a miracle on you, then I think that you know my theory is that especially within the lucid state where you you've got this deep mind and body entanglement, that any faith healing response is going to be extra powerful. So if, for example, um, in your dream, Asclepius comes and infuses your body with light. You know how in a lucid dream you you have this experience of bliss and euphoria, and I think that that is the body's self healing mechanism, and that that process it, itself is healing. So this is how I think a faith healing response can be activated in a dream state, and I think the faith healing response in a dream state is even more powerful than a waking faith healing response because you have this deeper level of entanglement. And during sleep, you have certain genes that are switched on that would be switched off during ordinary waking consciousness because they are genes involved in homeostasis. So the body's natural processes of rebalancing cell detoxification and renewal. And, um, you know, this is the thing that I I think is most promising about studying these ancient cultures of sleeping and dreaming is that I think they understood something that we have lost knowledge of but it's something that we could get back and it wouldn't you know i'm always doing experiments to see um you know if this is something that can be used in modern healthcare. and i think that you know i don't know about america but in england our hospitals are in an absolutely terrible state and one thing is they're not set up for making people feel healthy and harmonious they're just kind of emergency um quite scary and unpleasant and aesthetically unpleasing places. And I think that this appreciation that the ancients had for aesthetics and harmony and beauty and cleanliness for clean air and fresh water um, is something that we need to remember. Besides sneaking into a cemetery and sleeping there, are there any places on the planet where you could try to go sleep that are sacred and experiment for yourself? Um, definitely. Well, that's one of the projects I'm working on is I want to reintroduce sacred sleep into um, modern culture. And I'm working with Rupert Sheldrake and the British Pilgrimage Trust to um, take pilgrims on walks where we have a sleep at the end of it in either sites of um, sites of power, like megalithic circles or in churches or temples. I think that those places are still, you know, open to us and potentially might offer us um, divine dreams. But one of my, one of my passions is trying to get more dream incubation happening in museums because museums are the ultimate dream incubation sites to me because um, museum, the word museum comes from the word for muse. So it's all about inspiration and Mnemosyne is the mother of all the muses. So she is the ultimate source of inspiration. And she was a figure that was celebrated in the Asclepian sleep temple tradition because she's the 
goddess of remembrance of eloquence and eruditeness. She's uh, the goddess of sense making. She named all the things in the world. She's the daughter of heaven and earth, and she is the mother, and therefore she produced all the inspiration in the world, all the divine inspiration. So she's like a key figure and inspiration to me. And I think that when I visit museums, I get this great sort of sense of awe of the accomplishments of my, you know, the ancestors and this sense of them being more conscious of the divine nature of reality. What would be awesome is if you could just lead a group right over to Stonehenge and have a camp out there and sleep on your sleeping bags and see what happens. Yeah, that would be great. I think that is definitely on my bucket list of dream incubation opportunities. I have to get Rupert Sheldrake on that one. (laughs) So if we wanted to, how could we influence our own dreams? Well, the big thing in the ancient world is this idea of dream incubation. So um, setting intention, you know, it's useful to have a deity associated with dream incubation because then you can petition the gods before you go to sleep to deliver you a good dream. And in ancient conceptions of dreams, I mean, this is fascinating in and of itself that a lot of the ancient ideas around dreams were that dreams were personified. They were like beings or spirits that could come into you. And therefore, I do think there's something about having a deity, having a statue, because in the ancient world, statues were often considered to be living or to be imbued somehow with the spirit or energy of the the person or god or goddess that they were representing. So that's a completely different way of looking at the world. And I think it helps to have a statue or to have some image of um, a god or a goddess that you desire to bring into your dream because it helps you to kind of um, direct your attention to create an image. And creating images and creating like clear desires of what you want to experience in the dream is probably the most powerful um, way of getting the kind of dreams that you want and getting some sense as well for the ancient rituals surrounding dreams in the ancient world as well. All right. So I think you're saying if you have a statue in your room, but can you give us some examples and techniques that are practical to be able to like explore the inner depths of our psyche in our dreams? Yeah, I mean, maybe these days not many of us have got statues in our rooms, but you could have a photograph of someone that you really want to see in your dream, and that could be a good sort of psychic target. If you keep looking at that and you practice closing your eyes and re- and visualising that face and do that over and over again. I mean, one of the best ways, one of the reasons why a lot of people have lucid dreams or lucid dreams often occur when people have real strong romantic attraction towards somebody because they find that very easy to conjure up their face. And so therefore when they dream and they desire that person, they'll be conjured up in the dream space and that will alert them to the fact that they're dreaming. They'll often become lucid. So, I mean, one of the suggestions, one of the first suggestions I would say is write down the exact dream that you want to have in as much detail as possible. And you can draw it out as well, drawing it out or even creating kind of vision board of it would be really useful because having those visual cues is, is can be really important. And then actively imagine it, like actively close your eyes and, and try to vividly um, see it as well as you can. And I think that 
this is the reason why I think children have such great dreams usually and are often more e- find it easier to become lucid because they spend so much of their time in imaginative play. They're like always visualizing and imagining stuff and they almost inhabit this kind of imaginative play realm all the time anyway. So that just overlaps a bit more with their dreaming experience and makes those dreaming experiences a bit more vivid and colorful. So I think trying to uh, imagine and visualize as much as possible and a lot of people come to my workshops because they have um, anxiety dreams. And one tip I would always say as well is as far as possible, try to fall asleep feeling calm and peaceful. So if you can do any kind of thing in your daily routine, your sleep hygiene, your preparation for bed, have a bath, really treat yourself kindly as you would someone that you really loved. Uh, Don't eat anything before you go to bed. Like try to not eat sort of after about four o'clock in the afternoon because it's really helpful to sleep if you're not having to digest food and a lot of people eat quite late. Um, Having a bath is really good because that actually reduces your core temperature and that makes you more settled throughout the night and you're more likely to have a undisturbed and calm night's sleep. I use a weighted eye pillow, which is something that I just find immediately makes me relaxed and feel really calm and serene and helps me fall asleep really quickly actually as well so um I think it's important to think about the environment that you're sleeping in because if there's if you get too hot I'm a a real stickler for no memory foam mattresses I think memory foam mattresses are very detrimental to sleep health and often people will overheat on a memory foam mattress and I've found in my research that overheating is one of the major causes of nightmares and sleep anxiety and distress. So I think that all of the sensory information, because your body's always picking up sensory information, even though you're asleep and you're actually quite sensitive to the outside world and sometimes even more sensitive. So very, very small, slight sensations become amplified by the dream state because your body is in this much more subtle state whereby the tiniest little feeling or sound becomes much louder. So um, it's definitely worth thinking about creating this really peaceful dream and sleep sanctuary. I think that's the most important step. And that can be difficult because a lot of people have issues with sleeping and dreaming because they share a bed with someone who snores, for example, or they get too hot in the night or someone likes the window open, someone likes the window closed. These sorts of things, you know, affect sleep quality. Absolutely. In my introduction of you, I said that you are a sleep hypnosis facilitator What's the difference between sleep hypnosis and just regular hypnosis and how do you facilitate it? Well, in my workshops, I like because I, I started off doing mostly talks and presentations. And then I realized that a lot of people that were coming to my talks and presentations didn't have any experience of lucid dreaming or even good quality dreaming. So I really enjoy doing sleep hypnosis. And it's it's more like a kind of guided hypnagogic meditation. So the idea is this is that inspired by ancient dream cultures and the practice of dream incubation, I take people into a really deep state of relaxation. Quite often I'll use like yoga nidra techniques in the beginning so that you are kind of seeding the unconscious mind with suggestions of positive dreams that they might enter into. And one of my favorite ways of lucid dreaming is the so-called wild technique where you go from being awake to being within a lucid dream. And I used to do this as a kid, um, lying on my back in my bed when I was a kid and looking at the ceiling 
And then imagine my kind of dream body sinking down through my body, like Alice falling down the rabbit hole. So I try to take people on that um, journey through the hypnagogic space and learn and practice how to expand your awareness of that hypnagogic space so that you can consciously enter a dream. So I often describe the hypnagogic process of falling asleep, like Alice falling down the rabbit hole in the Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, because as she's falling down this rabbit hole, if you know the story, she's kind of seeing things. She's not looking at anything too closely, stuff's drifting past her. But the process of falling down, she's remembering all the time who she is, where she is, what she's doing, where she's going. And this pro, this experience of motion and falling through space is really important for the lucid dream thing. I talk to a lot of people and they say that when they become lucid for the first time, they get too excited and wake up. And what I've found helps to stay in the lucid state is to move slowly in the space and keep your dream body in motion. And the more you keep that momentum going, then the easier it is to get back into the dream. Do you feel that you can lucid dream at will or is it something that happens to you spontaneously? Um, a bit of both. If I make a, if I make lots of effort, I can have a lucid dream. Sometimes I'll have a lucid dream when I'm least expecting it, like maybe after not having much sleep for the last couple of nights if I'm busy or whatever. Um, so I go through phases. I don't lucid dream every night. Uh, but if I put my mind to it, I can do. And then I, for me, what works is because I have certain um, lucid dream triggers. And actually I have kind of every single night an element of the same dream. So as soon as I become conscious of that, then that helps me to wake up within the dream. Um, can you share a little bit more about what that element is? I have the, I've had this dream since I was really young of searching for the water of life or the water of memory. And if when I wake up in the morning, if I kind of scan back through the dreams, there's always some small thread of that dream in it. It's like my my hero's journey or something you know it's like my mythology is this water of life thing and there'll always be some aspect to that in my dream nearly always um so so yeah that's always worked for me um and then yeah I mean one of the things that I've really loved researching ancient dreams is they use the term divine dream and to me this is what you know, this is a marker of lucidity is that experience of divinity and euphoria and bliss that you have. So I have lucid dreams sometimes where I'm aware that I'm dreaming. I can reference my life outside of the dream and I know I'm where I am and what I'm doing, but I don't necessarily have the divine dimension of it or the euphoria and the bliss. And the thing that really strikes me as being a really meaningful, powerful dream is this sense of euphoria and bliss. And that's what I think um, ancient people were describing when they talked about divine dreams. Because if you think about it, you know, for a lot of ancient cultures, an interaction with a god or a goddess would have been the most extraordinary, powerful, um, transcendental moment of their life. So if they were encountering divine beings in their dreams, which the records show they were, then you can imagine their euphoric state when they encountered these beings. They would have been absolutely ecstatic. So that, to me, uh, points to that euphoric experience that you have when you're lucid in a dream. Have you ever thought about that the gods that they wanted to encounter in their dreams are real, like beings that are in some other realm or something, you know? Yeah, I think that 
I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that these kinds of images and these kinds of gods and beings were like ever present in cultures all over the world. Um, there is some validity to it. I think that reality is kind of what we make it. And for the ancients, reality and their experience of reality and their perception of the world was entirely different. It doesn't make it less valid. If they were suddenly transported to modern times, they would see magic and wonder in a way that we would find that difficult to compute. I collect um, expedition accounts from the 30s and 40s, and a lot of them are in the Amazon rainforest. And there's some beautiful descriptions of this phenomena of indigenous people who have really limited or zero experience of technology encountering um you know whether they be missionaries or or expedition groups that have things like cameras or record players and them just being completely like overwhelmed with how much magic they think these people have and there's this beautiful example in one of the books that I've got where um a expedition group encounter a a small tribe in the Amazon rainforest that had been previously contacted by missionaries. And the missionaries showed them the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston on a projector in the middle of the rainforest. And they all just converted immediately to Christianity because that was the most magical, um, like undeniably wizardry type of act that they could possibly imagine and so of course they just dropped everything and then they were instantly disengaged from that natural world and it shows them like from one year to the next when they were walking around the rainforest naked they knew how to communicate with the plants they had this deep interwoven existence in the rainforest next year they're trying to wear suits in the rainforest they they've converted to christianity it's just shattered their connection to their natural world because they put so much faith in this vision that was um technology to us but magic to them that's amazing i wonder if there are different definitions of lucid dreaming. For example, I'm not even sure if I lucid dream or not, but what I can tell you is sometimes I'll be having a stressful dream and then towards the end of the dream, I'll realize, why am I even bothering with this dream? I'm going to try to think about something else. I think that um, it's a sort of spectrum, you know, lucidity. I think, you know, lucidity is not black and white, cut and dry. It's uh, a rich complex of experiences. And then I would say this for me, the fundamental elements of it are that you, within the dream space, you remember who and where you are and that you're dreaming and you're conscious of the fact that you're inhabiting a dream world. And then that in and of itself can often create this experience of euphoria because you have this sudden understanding of like this incredible omnipotence that you have and this vast and this vast expanding of your sense of self um but like I was saying to you before as well sometimes I have dreams where they're lucid because I know I'm in a dream I'm conscious of my life outside of the dream but I don't have that euphoric element for me the euphoria is quite important in it so so I like the term divine dream it's it's to me more kind of meaningful and I love the history and culture of it um, so yeah, I think lucidity is a is a spectrum rather than um, a clear cut definition. And um, 
you know, if you look at some of the experiments that have proven lucid dreamings, which involve uh, participants being hooked up to EEG machines to um, know when they're in REM so they can see their eyes are moving rapidly. And then with pre-agreed ocular signaling by putting that, showing their eyes moving like maybe five times to the left, five times to the right, they signal to the scientist observing them that they're in a dream. So that's quite, that's something you can be trained to do if you can regularly lucid dream. But I mean, that goes to show how lucid dreaming is a kind of recognized different state of consciousness. Do you think that dreams can show us the future? And if you do see it, can it still be prevented? Yes, I do think dreams can show us the future. And if you look at the ancient cultures of dream interpretation, they're entirely preoccupied with predicting the future, which to me also suggests a different worldview and a different understanding of how reality and nature work. Um, My sort of personal intuitive feeling about it is that, you know, during ordinary REM, REM sleep, you're in a kind of personal, individual dream. And then when you go into super deep sleep you're in the collective dream and maybe in the collective dream you can access this information that can predict the future in this sort of timeless um uh connective space maybe that's where visions of the future are coming from and i do think that ancient people had uh a different maybe um maybe different powers of memory processing or memory connectivity, which helped them to navigate those spaces more mindfully than we do perhaps these days where we kind of more just don't remember our dreams. I think dreams were clearly incredibly important in the ancient world and they seem to be less important now. So that in and of itself points to the fact that more people dreamt more often and, and that those dreams were more meaningful for them. And you see dreams used as a narrative device in all ancient texts across the board. Their dream interpretation is like a respected profession and an art. And uh, dream interpretation is based upon um, un- like decoding information given in a dream to predict the future. And so I think it shows this particular kind of oracular mindset this idea that the clues to the future are ever present always so in any given moment in any um any kind of divining of the present moment you can see the future in a way and I guess that's about pattern recognition and understanding the way nature works and observing nature and recognizing that very often it's absolutely accurate that you can predict the future by observing closely the patterns that repeat themselves over and over and over again. So, you know, for example, just old kind of uh, folklores about if you see birds gathering, that means there's going to be a storm. Things like this were always part of ancient folk traditions and we've kind of lost contact with the natural world. So we're perhaps less sensitive to those patterns. I was also thinking like, for example, if you saw an image of someone that's well known as a betrayer. And whenever you see that image of that person in your dream, then in your waking life that day, somebody's going to betray you. Mm, Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think with regards to being betrayed, that's something that you have an inkling of, isn't it, in the run-up to the discovery. You are always picking up signals about the reality of your situation. And I think that when you're sleeping, you have this more perhaps expanded access to the unconscious mind, to subconscious um, information. So I think that, you know, this idea of dreams offer you an opportunity to connect with your higher self. And quite often we lie to ourselves and we delude ourselves about our situation. And it relates, say for an example, in, in a relationship that's not going well, you might be in denial about it, but in your dreams, it comes out. And so you will probably get premonitions of being disappointed or betrayed or um, cheated on, whatever it is. Um, these things tend to come to the surface in dreams, which is why so many people do have a lot of nightmares because they... Um, aren't necessarily being honest with themselves about the situation they find themselves in in life. And they they kind of want everything to be all right. But when they go to sleep at night, the truth definitely comes out in dreams. What are your thoughts on people who during their dreams see people from the other side that have passed and also see them as a younger version of themselves? Yeah, well, I, I think that dreams offering access to offering access to uh, the deceased is one of the most powerful aspects of dreaming. And I think that it would have been the aspect of dreaming that inspired ancient people the most into this idea of there being an afterlife, an other world, a place where people go once they die. So I actually think dreams are responsible for afterlife beliefs and religions, really, because, you know, when you have a really vivid dream, you're interacting with someone that is dead that is incredibly powerful and it can be incredibly healing as well. If you really love that person and you miss them, having that real experience of that presence in a dream is enormously healing for people that are uh, grieving. It's one of the most fascinating elements of dreaming. And I think that if you look at the earliest evidence for um, sacred dreaming for purposeful dreaming it seems to be it's about dreaming with the deceased so if you look at the settlement of Catalhoyuk, for example in the little domiciles that they built where um people slept they slept on built up sleeping platforms that were above um intramural burials so where people from that family or maybe not even from that family were buried directly under where they were sleeping and i I think that was intentional it was intentional because that could be a shared space between the living and the dead and i think that that was significant and important and it has been significant and important to all cultures in all times and is probably something that we should return to is this idea of honoring the dead and connecting with our ancestors in the dreaming space the title of your book is Initiation into Dream Mysteries, and you use the word initiation like as if you're initiating somebody into some type of dream society or or something. Is that what you meant by that? A dream cult. Um, well, the idea is that it's a sort of initiation into familiar, familiarizing yourself with your own dream realm. And so the book is quite unusual because it's a mixture of fiction and non-fiction it's mostly non-fiction it's mostly my research but I've purposely 
purposefully included seven short narrative sections. Um, and there are seven stories that are inspired by, and they're more like scene setting and context even rather than stories. So um, during the process of writing the book, I did seven dream incubations for myself after each chapter to reflect upon the cultures and to see if I could get any insight to explore it in dream consciousness, basically. So I incubated for these seven dreams. And so in that incubation, I was asking to see, um, you know, dream experience in the ancient world. And then I wrote down these accounts and these uh, narrative sections. So my idea with the book is that I think that a story and fiction and narrative, they engage the senses that are so important to dreaming more vividly than nonfiction. So dreams are all about memories and emotions. So with fiction and with story, you're much more likely to tap into those powers more so than nonfiction because you have a, a an emotional and a memory response to reading a story, to reading fiction. You imagine yourself in the position of the protagonist or you imagine yourself in the scenery. It's more active and engaging. And I'm a big fan of um, Alexandra Jodorowsky and his idea of psycho magic. You know, in the Holy Mountain film, it's this beautiful archetypal graphic visual visceral experience of traveling mentally through the tarot deck so you experience the major arcana you're you're going on the journey of the fool and whenever you watch the holy mountain you have really weird because it's all just sex and blood and gore and death and birth and it's very sort of visceral and um you can't help but really feel and connect with the images and dreams communicate communicate through symbols and images so it really works on the subconscious to watch those kinds of things because you can use then the um the system of the tarot to um as a tool to extract your own story out of your own subconscious mind. So it helps to make sense of yourself when you watch something like that. It kind of, it's like food for the dream self. Why do some people not dream or at least not remember them at all? I think most people do dream, but most people, you know, a lot of people, I mean, lots of people come to my workshops and say they don't ever remember their dreams, which is amazing, you know, is incredible. I think that the process of dreaming itself is a process of of remembering and forgetting remembering and forgetting and that that's actually the natural processes of sleep and dream is that you should be forgetting some stuff and you should be remembering stuff and there is this idea you know because of the technological age that we live in whatever technological age we live on those systems kind of get transposed onto the human form you know so in the early days when things were made on a potter's wheel, humans were made out of clay. Now that we're in the age of technology and, and um, digital realms, we're living in a simulation. So um, I think that when people start thinking about memory now, they think about human beings working like computers and having certain amounts of storage or, you know, having to purge information. But um, it seems to me that the dreaming process is a process of remembering and forgetting. And there is this sense of you consolidate the memories that are important and you um, detoxify memories that are not useful or taking up space that might not necessarily be there. I don't think that memories are stored in the brain in the way 
um, information is stored in computers. I think that every memory is a process of remembering and, and reactivating an experience based upon triggers and prompts. And if you look at, I think there's been neuroscience into how memories manifest in the dream when someone is told to remember something. I had a guest on that was a Harvard neurosurgeon, and he was telling me of some other brain surgeon's work about that you can cut out any piece of the brain and you will not lose long-term memory. You will lose the ability to convert short-term memory into long-term memory. And so my guess, or I'm assuming his hypothesis or what he stated is that long-term memories are stored in what he called the quantum hologram. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, this is very similar to Rupert Sheldrake's ideas about memory. And, um, you know, this is something that I feel with memory as well, is memory is, as you say, um, in a sense, holographic, because it doesn't necessarily appear in the same place all the time. You can't say there's this particular brain region where all memories are stored. That's not the case. And I know of these um neuroscientific experiments where they're trying to track memory and they are visualizing brain activity when people are remembering particular things that have happened to them in their lives. And I think it's also the case that if you remove the area where it looks like these memories are rising, then they just move somewhere else. So they're kind of living and they're mobile. And I think that they'll use whatever neural pathways are available to them given the right prompts and um and keywords or triggers i think that memories are really remembrances they're not like this they're not like um physical tangible things i mean lots of people use the example of you know memories being stored in the brain like it's a filing cabinet but i don't think that's the case at all memories seem to be interwoven into everything and that was one of the things that i found super interesting about talking to rebecca with highly superior autobiographical memory because when she was explaining how she accesses memories it was fascinating because she's also a lot more conscious of it because her memories are so incredible and she's also autistic and synesthetic so that also is a an interesting element of this um this way that she thinks and remembers things because she has this incredible cross-referencing system when she wants to access memories she they're almost like color coded and they're synesthetic as well they're more than just visual memories they're multi-sensory why do you think some people dream nearly every single day about dead people especially relatives well i think it can depend upon the nature of your relationships with those relatives um and i guess that's just i guess that's just the way some people uh, are made that that's that thing you know i've got my um drinking the water of memory thing i think we do develop personal um themes and motifs over our lifetime and the more we activate those neural pathways that take us in a certain direction the more likely we are to go down the same sort of avenues every time we we start dreaming because within the dreaming landscape it's really my dreamscape is very familiar to me now I know it really well and because I've had a lot of lucid dreams I've been able to bring my dream experiences into my waking consciousness and I think that you create a feedback 
system by writing your dreams down or drawing your dreams or making art that's inspired by your dreams. And that makes dreaming more eloquent. You kind of understand why you're dreaming about certain things and it becomes this, it becomes a an experience that you can be fully conscious of. But I do think that feedback system is really useful and important and that you can get a lot of useful insight out of dreaming. But the the forgetting aspects of it, I think, can also be important. You know, I think that dreaming is an incredibly powerful tool for integrating and releasing traumas and uh, facing fears, overcoming fears, all these sorts of things. I think current science will say that you're only dreaming right before you wake up in that certain brainwave frequency. But I've recently read a report that said that in REM sleep, you actually are astral traveling. What are your thoughts on astral travel and dreams in general? And to, I'm sorry, I should have- I think with REM sleep. I'm sorry, I should have added that the REM sleep, the report on the astral travel during REM sleep is that you don't remember it. Yeah, I think that it still is all a bit of a mystery how dreaming works exactly in science and anywhere else, really. I think like the Tibetan Buddhists and Tibetan dream yoga, I mean, they have their own dream science. And that is the most kind of concise and precise um, scientific description of dream practice that I think exists anywhere. And I think it is because it has this incredible lineage and is so ancient and has been repeatedly recorded and experienced and practiced for so long. Um, I, I think it's fairly well established that, you know, anytime you're in REM, which you can be throughout the night, but you tend to have longer phases of REM before you wake up in the morning, you are dreaming. But dreaming is also occurring in deep sleep, which is amazing because there's no REM. And it's almost to me speaks of the sort of near death experiences as well, which is why I think this kind of realm of dreams and dead um, overlaps somewhat because um, if you wake someone up from deep sleep, they will sometimes tell you that they've had a dream and yet there's no sign of them having a dream in terms of the ordinary markers like REM. So there's something really interesting going on there. Um, you know, my as I was saying, like my feelings about dreaming intuitively are that the REM phases, the lighter sleep is the personal individual dream. And then when you are in deep sleep, it's the collective dream. What are your thoughts on sleep paralysis? Sleep paralysis is actually a really good technique to sort of springboard into lucid dreaming if you can um, refrain from becoming a fearful or afraid. My friend uh, Engelbert Winkler, who is one of the inventors alongside Dirk Perkel of the Lucia light machine, which is a hypnagogic light machine, um, his technique for lucid dreaming is pretending that he's got sleep paralysis. And that helps him access lucidity. But I think I've had experiences as a child of um, I've really never had sleep paralysis apart from once coming out of a dream where I couldn't move. And I felt like I had to click my dream body back into my body on my bed to wake up. Um, but sleep paralysis, I think, is people get scared when they're, they're paralyzed and they can't move. And that sort of seed, seeding of a little bit of fear and anxiety 
becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and is kind of fueled by the fear until it becomes an oppressive force and people will even feel something pressing down on their chest or see an entity on top of them. So sleep paralysis is an interesting one. For a lot of people, it will come because of issues of stress and anxiety, of drinking alcohol, of um, uh, shift work and stuff like this. Um, A lot of children will experience it. Uh, it's, you know, I, I find sleep paralysis really interesting, but I think the most important thing to remember with it is if you can not be afraid, it's a really, really useful way to access a lucid dream. Do you recommend dream journaling or any other way to help us remember our dreams? Yeah. uh, Dream journaling is amazing. I think that I find dream memory is my most fast, you know, the most fascinating area of research for me. And there's something extraordinary about where are dreams happening that they can't be um, remembered as well in a lot of instances. I mean, the thing with lucidity, lucid dreams, because you are conscious of the dream as it's happening, you can remember it in the same way that you can remember any waking experience. And they can sometimes be even more vivid. But with an ordinary dream, the way it evaporates upon waking, even though as soon as you wake, it's super vivid, is amazing. And then the process of like, you might write down one line from what you think you remember, but then that will help you suddenly remember all this other stuff or the way that you might think you've forgotten your dream, but at some point during the day, someone will say something or you'll see something that will just immediately trigger a memory of this whole dream scene. So dream memory is absolutely fascinating. Dream journaling hundred percent works it's one of the best ways to get more lucid dreams. I do think that anything that you do that improves your memory is most likely going to improve your chances of lucid dreaming because I think it is all about memory. And the more conscious you can be as you fall asleep, the more likely, the more you remember that you're falling asleep as you're falling asleep, the more likely you are to have a lucid episode. Um, Similarly, any nootropics or food supplements that are really good for your memory are useful for lucid dreaming as well. Is there any evidence whether if you have a lucid dream or not, you wake up feeling more rested in the morning? This is an interesting question because I do have a lot of people say that they have lucid dreams all the time and they wake up feeling exhausted. And that's just not something that I have ever experienced. But there are certain kind of hypersomnia like uh, sleep disorders, which can uh, have you waking up feeling exhausted, like you've run a marathon in the night, which is obviously not ideal. You don't want to be feeling like that. Um So that can be tackled with kind of looking at sleep hygiene and um, just observing what's happening to you during the night and being aware. I mean, maybe even um, trying to get into a sleep clinic because you shouldn't be waking up feeling like you're exhausted. You know, the the body prioritizes deep sleep because it's so important for cellular regeneration and body detoxification. So the this is a reason why we have these phases and different sleep cycles. We prioritize deep sleep. Once our body's um, homeostasis processes are complete and we're replenished and we're well rested, then we get longer and longer phases of REM until the final phase, which might be an hour, maybe even more. Um And this is also why you're more likely to have a lucid dream in that final portion of REM, because that's going to be the longest um, phase of REM and you're closer to waking up as well. 
so you're more sensitive to the sensory impressions coming in as well but um yeah that's that's an interesting one there are lots of sleep conditions that go unrecognized and undiagnosed as well and there could be all sorts of things like um unrecognized sleep apnea for example where people can't like stop breathing suddenly in the middle of the night and that could give someone a nightmare um and that's something you could be completely unaware of you know often people will say you know my partner wakes up sort of gasping in the middle of the night it can sometimes be snoring or it can be sometimes be sleep apnea uh, all of those kinds of things are worth looking at if someone wanted to get your book do they find it on amazon or somewhere else Yep, it's everywhere. It's on Amazon. It's published by Inner Traditions in the US and distributed by Simon & Schuster in the UK. It's out in America now. And I think you can get it from just about everywhere. And um, and yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's about it. I think it's in all, I think it's in lots of bookshops and stuff now as well. I think you mentioned earlier that you're leading retreats and, and other things. What else do you got going on that you would like us to know about? Well, the project that I'm most extremely excited about at the moment is I am curating a dream and sleep symposium in Athens uh, in October from the 23rd to the 29th. And this is going to be a week long, um, actually a kind of curated dream space. So although they're going to be lectures, talks, presentations, workshops, it's going to be held in this curated space so that participants feel like they're in a dream space. And one thing we're working on at the moment, which I'm really excited about, is to get um, potential participants to co-curate this dream space by adding information from their dreams to our dream map that we can then 3D print or or we're working with lots of different artists to create these different spaces, but they'll be inspired by the dreams of the participants. So it'd be amazing because if you've submitted some you know, architectural landscape or scenery from your dream, when you come to Athens, you might see part of it in the design of the set. And it, I think it will help to give you this real sense of being like occupying a dream space. Do you have a YouTube channel? I do. Yeah. I have a website, which is themysteries.org. And that has links to absolutely everything I'm doing. And that includes my YouTube channel. So I have a various different playlists on my YouTube channel. I've got all my Egyptology on one, and then I've got more sort of esoteric um, uh, playlists as well. If someone wanted to reach out to you, should they do it through your website? Yeah, they can do that from my website. It's got my email address, contact form, everything on there. So yeah. Is there also a link to your podcast? Yeah, I've just, I've got all my podcasts and radio appearances on one page there at the moment. And I've just started to do my own podcast where I interview scholars on ancient dream culture. And quite often these are people that don't think they're necessarily interested in dreams, but they actually have loads of fantastic information about the ancient history of dreaming. So my first guest, because I've only done one so far, is a scholar called Sophus Helle, who's a Danish cuneiform translator and a seriologist and he's just published a translation of the epic of gilgamesh which has got extraordinary uh, reviews and is absolutely amazing and uh, so he was i was interviewing him about the traditions of um dream culture in babylon and uh, other cultures in mesopotamia and um and that was absolutely amazing like super interesting for me um 
And yeah, I'm going to be interviewing like Egyptologists and um, ancient Greek scholars and things like this as well. So I really love the ancient culture element of it. Sarah, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Well, I very much hope that everyone listening has amazing, good dreams. And uh, I think lucidity is something that is free and accessible and healthy and brilliant and life affirming and life enhancing for every single human being on this planet. And um, if we could just remember the dream space, I think we could make great improvements to the world and our lives. Sarah, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.